Hello, Hawks fans, and welcome to another episode of the Kettlecast with your host, Forrest Willoughby. On this episode of the cast, we'll be talking to Ben Ladner, contributor over at Fansided and host of the Read and React podcast. On this episode, I talk to Ben about the final 10 games of the Hawks season, the Hawks season so far, and what he expects going into the playoffs. Without further ado, let's get into it. Well, Ben, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Kettlecast. And just to start off, the Hawks are heading into the last 10 games this season, and they finally get some games at home. They have seven of their next 10 at home. What have you seen from the Hawks this season, and what do you expect them to do, I guess, finishing up these next 10 games? Um, the kind of battle for the fourth seed and staying out of the play-in is getting pretty tight at the end of the season. Yeah, the Eastern Conference has really been packed all season in that like four to 10 range. Now, I guess kind of four to eight, it's narrowing off a little bit. But, you know, it's hard to make to know what to make of this team right now. Kind of similar to last year where you just have so many guys in and out of the lineup, injuries. Um, you know, COVID has thrown a wrench into that this season, although the Hawks haven't been hit too hard by that. But, you know, it's it, it always seems like once you get one guy back, a Bogdanovich, a Gallinari, someone else goes out, a Collins, a Trey Young, you know, so it's just, and DeAndre Hunter to say nothing of, of his lingering knee issues and Cam Reddish who's missed the last couple months. So just not seeing this team in its full iteration um, kind of gives an air of mystique to it or mystery at least where you, I mean, I think in theory, this team has the, the one of the highest upsides, maybe along with Boston and Miami of any of those non Milwaukee, Brooklyn and Philly teams in the Eastern conference at the same time, like full health is never guaranteed. And I think especially for this team, I don't know if you can necessarily assume that DeAndre Hunter is going to come back and just be the same DeAndre Hunter. If Cam Reddish is going to come back and be that, that, you know, ace wing defender that he has been at certain times in his career. So, you know, ultimately you kind of have what you have. And I think assuming, let's say the two young wings are not healthy and they're not part of it. I think this is a, a team that should be, you know, top four or five seed, just because like you mentioned, the home games coming down the stretch, those aren't particularly hard games. They've got two against the Sixers on the road coming up, uh, but then they go Chicago, Portland, and Phoenix all at home. That's Phoenix is probably a loss, but then Indiana two with Washington, Orlando, Houston, all four of their last games are against teams who are trying to lose or should be trying to lose. So in that sense, I think they're pretty well positioned to, to get, favorable playoff position. I'd be surprised if they were in the play-in, which I think if you told Hawks fans that to start the year, that they were going to avoid the play-in, like that's a pretty good outcome. So um, when you, when you kind of view it with that scope, I think this has been a fairly successful season. I guess the question would be now have the expectations raised a little bit. Are the standards different? Because now, you know, okay, this is a team that can actually be dangerous. This is a team that with Trey Young on the floor can have a really good offense with Clint Capella on the floor, can have a, a decent defense and compete with the Milwaukee's, the, the Phillies, you know, maybe the Brooklyn's. And they've they've played those teams, especially uh, you know, the Bucks the other night with that win. And they've played Brooklyn pretty well this season. Granted, they haven't had all three of their stars together very often, but the Hawks have looked decent against those top teams in the East. So I think they are in that territory where you say, if they're healthy, which is a big if. You know, they're they're a team that could be like, you know, the 2008 Hawks who pushed the Celtics to seven games in the first round and ultimately get knocked, but, you know, show some competitiveness against a really good team and give themselves something to build on moving forward. 
Yeah, it's been interesting to see the expectations from the fan base in particular shift as the season has moved on. It started, you know, especially when Lloyd Pierce was here being 14 and 20, and then the big change when Nate McMillan got started. But to go from totally being excited to get, you know, have the playoffs be pretty much a lock-in and be in the play-in to, you know, we're pushing for maybe having home court in the first round um, and maybe – as some of my uh, some of the people I follow like to say, get greedy and maybe come out of that first round and play some of these tougher teams. Um, But they just haven't been able to be healthy altogether. We even saw it with Chris Dunn finally making his um, first debut for the Hawks this season. And then Kevin Herter and Brandon Goodwin get injured. And it's just like, every time someone comes in, someone goes out. Um, What has been the biggest change? And I know you really followed the Hawks, especially closely last season, but the biggest difference from maybe what Lloyd Pierce was doing to what Nick McMillan has been able to do in, um, in his coaching and, and the change with the team there. Well, I think McMillan is a, a coach, sort of a classic example of a guy who just professionalizes you on both ends of the floor. He's going to get you to do what you, the, the bare, you know, basic, what you need to do on both ends of the floor. You're going to make rotations on defense. You're going to compete on that end. Um, you're going to move the ball on offense. You're going to be in the right places. And, and I think with Pierce, there was this feeling that maybe he's the guy who can get the most out of Trey young because he can put the ball in a, in a star's hands and, and spread the floor out. Um, but that sort of, that, that's more of a high risk, high reward type of thing. And we saw the offense at times be really dynamic under Pierce. And at other times we saw it stagnate and be kind of stale. And I think McMillan has just given them more options especially on that end of the floor where now they can run the offense through Bogdan Bogdanovich, who's playing the best basketball of his career right now. Kevin Herter, who can give you some secondary playmaking in addition to the way he shoots the ball. Um, You know, you can involve John Collins a little bit more and still keep Trey young as the, the straw that stirs the drink, but not necessarily as that just ball dominant focal point that he had been under Pierce. Um, So I think just, just cleaning things up around the margins about, I don't, I don't know that there are necessarily any, major structural changes that McMillan has made. Like the, the personnel is not all that different. There've been, like you said, different guys kind of in and out of the lineup, but largely he's, he's kind of just tightening the screws and and cleaning up stuff on the margins that, that Pierce couldn't. And I think, you know, that's not to to denigrate Lloyd Pierce or anything. He was a first time head coach coaching a team that all of a sudden wanted to make the playoffs and sort of fast track their rebuild. And with McMillan, I think he's proven at every stop he's been at that, He's just going to squeeze the absolute most he can out of whatever roster he's working with. And maybe once you get a more star studded, talented roster, you hit a point of diminishing returns. But right now the Hawks don't have that. And they're a team that, that needs to get the most out of their roster to get where they want to go, you know, for their immediate future. Um, So I think just on both ends of the floor, being able to, to tighten up and, and clean up some of the mistakes that, that are typical of a young team, um, has, has really been the difference there. But I mean, even that doesn't necessarily account for what is it? 20 and seven under McMillan this season, just the way they've taken off. I do think part of that is there's, there's sort of a renewed spirit around this team. Like if you read some of the reporting coming out of, you know, the, the dust storm after Pierce got fired, you saw that a lot of guys weren't necessarily bought into him as a coach. His system didn't feel like he was uh, like, they connected with him personally and he was the guy to kind of lead this group and there was a little bit of, of resentment coming from some of the players toward the coach. And I think that that doesn't exist with McMillan and whether that's fair or not, 
to Lloyd Pierce, whether that's right or wrong, justified or not. I think it is the case. And so you're just seeing a team that believes more in the coach and, and wants to, to play for them. So, I mean, that's, again, that's not, that doesn't entirely account for the, the 20 and seven, the strategic adjustments don't entirely account for that. But I think when you put them together, that's when you see a more balanced team playing with, with more of a purpose and more of an energy. You bring up such a good point that it can't really all explain the new performance for the Hawks, especially when you just look at like fourth quarters in particular, how much better the Hawks are under Nate McMillan being at the top of the NBA in that category after being middling, if not uh, towards the bottom. And that idea of belief, and you hear it harped after games by the players and Nate McMillan, just, we want to believe we want to be a fist together. And it does seem that Nate McMillan has been able to provide a more clear message at the very least and something that the players connect to. And it was an idea I didn't really, that didn't make initial sense to me that, you know, Pierce wanted a little bit more free flowing and not to lock the guys into any system, wanted them to kind of do things on their own where uh, McMillan has come in and provided that structure. And by providing the structure, these guys now know where they're supposed to be and can tighten it up. And it's a little bit easier, even just creating a little bit of sets for Bogdan Bogdanovich, who you talk about and is having this great season. I mean, I don't know that the Kings would have let this guy go if they knew he was going to come out and shoot the ball from three better than anyone not named Steph Curry. But what do you think about the additions that Schlink made in the offseason as well? Um, we kind of had a slow start from uh, Gallinari, Clint Capella, and Bogdan. And now, you know, after they've played 62 games together, these are guys that have each carried a win in, in a, a couple cases for the Hawks. Yeah, well, before, just to go back to what you said, I think that's a great point about um, just the structure that McMillan provides. It's, al it's almost like when you, it, it's the difference between maybe giving someone a blank canvas and saying, do something versus drawing some lines and saying, play within this structure, you know, because you want, like, I, you can see what Pierce was going for. You want to give the guys, you know, freedom and the ability to, to play their game. But at times that can just, you're almost like throwing them out with no plan. It, it can feel like, whereas, you know, McMillan is a guy who says, all right, we're going to play within this box, but you can do what you want within those confines. And I think that's, you know, that's something that you have to learn as a coach. Again, not, not a slight at Lloyd Pierce at all, but um, yeah, I think that's an interesting kind of framework to, to think of it. As far as the new guys, I think it's sort of what I expected from them. It just took a little while longer to get there. You know, I mean, Bogdanovich is, I think he's, he's on the older side for someone with his experience, but he's still in his mid twenties, you know, a guy who you expect to get better. And he has, and he's playing the best basketball of his career. He's been exactly what they expected to get at the two next to Trey young. Some of that secondary playmaking, great shooting, um, a guy who can get to the basket, fine guys. You can run him as your, your kind of backup point guard when Trey young's off the floor, which has been a problem for the Hawks in, in recent years. Or you can play him next to Trey and he can fit in and he's, he's not a high opportunity cost player where he's losing value without the ball, um, but he can have the ball when you need him to. Same with Kevin Herter. He's sort of a, a souped up Kevin Herter in a lot of ways. And then Gallinari, you know, a guy who can just sort of, much like Nick McMillan, just sort of steady and professionalize your offense. A veteran guy who is limited at this point in his career because he's dealt with so many injuries, but still a great shooter, still a guy who can create space for himself because of his size and his shooting ability still gets to the foul line. Um, still does all of the Danilo Gallinari stuff just at maybe 85, 90% of what he used to. Um, Chris Dunn, we haven't seen a lot 
to this point. I, I still, I mean, he's kind of a zero on offense, but if you pair him with Trey Young, like you're getting, that's, I think that the greatness of Trey Young offensively outweighs whatever Chris Dunn's taking off the table. And then you have an elite point of attack defender, assuming he's fully healthy and can play up to that speed. And then the guy who's sort of a new addition and sort of not is Clint Capella because he didn't play last season. And he's been better than, than I think my wildest expectations would have been. I, I sort of viewed him as a guy who could take them from literally the worst center rotation in the entire NBA to mediocre, you know, and, and maybe take them from 30th defensively to 20th or something. But with him on the floor, they have been legitimately good on de- like a top 10 level defense with Capella on the floor. Now, backup center still remains an issue, you know, relying on a rookie to, to soak up those minutes is kind of tough. But I mean, Capella has, I mean, I don't think he's going to win defensive player of the year. I'm not sure he should be in serious consideration for it, but second team, all defense wouldn't shock me. If there were a third team, all defense, it wouldn't shock me to see him get into that conversation. He has been really, really good. Easily the team's most consistent player this season. Um, Even, even when Trey Young's been healthy, I think there have been times when Capella has been more steady and more reliable than Trey this year. So yeah, he's just been, so much better than I expected him to be and, and sort of really my expectation, but to the max, you know, a guy who's just going to, because I think people really slept on how bad the Hawks center rotation was last year. You know, like the idea coming into the year that they were going to be the worst defense in the league to me was kind of asinine just because not even because Clint Capella is a great defensive player, which he has proven to be, but even if he were mediocre, like they were dealing what they were dealing with last year was so far beyond mediocre. It was just, it was unbelievable and and hard to watch sometimes, but he's, so he's taken them not from terrible to mediocre. He's taken them from terrible to good. And that's a massive, massive jump. So, and I think you talk about when the playoffs come around, that's going to be an even greater advantage because presumably he'll play more minutes. You won't have to rely as much on Okongwu or Gallinari or even John Collins to play center who's it's been mixed results with him as the only big man on the floor. You, when you can play Capella more minutes, I think you're going to just get more minutes of quality defense and you're and fewer minutes to just survive without him on the floor. I think you bring up a really good point and it's been talked about a lot, just how the NBA shifts from kind of for, to a different game in the playoffs first, the regular season. And I was wondering what you thought the Hawks, would do when that changes. They rely a lot on free throws this season, uh, getting to the free throw line, um, but they have been very good getting rebounds, of course, with Clint Capella, and also off the bench, they've gotten strong performances from uh, now Lou Williams, but also Danilo Gallinari, and in the playoffs, those lineups shrink, the rotations shrink, and guys play more minutes. Do you think that's something the Hawks are going to have to get used to, something that helps them as a team, or what, what are your thoughts going into the playoffs? Yeah, the free throws are a great point. They're second in free throw rate this season, I think at like 22% um, per cleaning the glass. So that's, I mean, historically there is evidence that free throws go down in the postseason. I think especially for a team like the Hawks, who unlike Joel Embiid, for example, who's drawing fouls because he's just so overwhelming, you have to foul him. With the Hawks, with Lou, with Trey, with Gallinari, I mean, those, those are three of the most prominent examples in the league. Those are guys who are, pump faking, jumping into you, you know, hooking your arm, kind of drawing these cheap fouls that I think in the regular season, yeah, I mean, refs are going to call that. It's a smart play. But in the postseason, don't get called quite as much. 
And I think that's a reason why we've seen lose efficiency or efficacy go down in the postseason historically. Um, same with Gallinari to a degree. So that's that's a concern. I think that's something to to watch out for. I would definitely um, like I would definitely expect their offense to be slightly worse in the playoffs, both because of that and just because you're playing against better defenses who are more dialed in. Um, but they are also 10th in half court efficiency this season. And, you know, the, the middle of the pack is all kind of bunched up. The difference between 10th and 16th, 17th is not huge, but they've been a decent half court offensive team this year. So I still think you put Trey Young in a pick and roll with three shooters and a roll man next to him. You're going to get pretty good stuff in general. So you may not be getting to the foul line every five trips or whatever it is, but you're still going to get a lot of dunks. You're still going to get a lot of kickout threes. You're still going to get a lot of decent looks from floater range for Trey. I think the question is going to be, and maybe this is an area where Bogdanovich becomes really important, is who's the guy that can just create in an isolation or in a pick and roll? And Trey is an amazing pick and roll playmaker, but he hasn't been an incredible pick and roll scorer this year. And what you see in the playoffs sometimes is the, the easy stuff that you can get out of just putting your best player in an action a lot of that gets taken away, you know, the low hanging fruit that you can pick off of. And the question I think for Trey is going to be, especially in his first postseason, can he create separation against big rangy, quick defenders who are going to be trying to smother him? Can he get to a step back jumper? Can he hit that, you know, 28 foot pull up consistently enough to put pressure on the defense? And if not, who's doing that? And I think the answer at times is going to be Bogdanovich at times. If he's healthy, it could be Deandre Hunter, although, you know, he's also a young guy playing in his first postseason if he plays. Um, at times it could be Herter, but he has his own offensive limitations. And so you kind of look beyond that. And is it Lou Williams? If so, how, you know, how much can you live with him being a negative defensively? Um, can you play him with Trey at all in the playoffs? Or is that just going to be untenable? You know, so I think the, the question of who's going to just create and make the tough shots, because you have to do that at, at some point to some degree in the postseason. Um, is going to be kind of kind of the big one for them. And, and again, I think they can still get good stuff in the pick and roll. They still have a lot of different options. They still can run creative offensive sets that can spring guys free. Capella's still going to be effective, I think. But, um, you know, in, in, down the stretch against better opponents, just when things tighten up, like where do they go? And I think they have multiple potential answers to that question, but none that, that we've really seen before, none, none that are definitive enough that we really know for sure. And I think there are some things that the Hawks have going for them. I mean, with Nate McMillan, none of his teams have a super high pace and pace usually goes down in the playoffs where it, so they'll be used to that. Trey young has had to adjust to how his uh, play has been called against refs already this season. And I think it's been a tough adjustment for him um, as somebody who watches a lot of Hawks games to see what other players get continuation and what Trey gets as just that fouls on the ground is kind of just, it, it by I can't really tell a big difference and so there's been a little bit of adjustment by the Hawks so far this season and I am excited to see you know teams have already double teamed Trey Young before you know the Nuggets in particular have been they hard double Trey already and to see that on a more extreme level in the playoffs I'd be excited to see what the Hawks can do on that but just uh like you said teams are going to be more prepared for what the Hawks do going in the playoffs and how they adjust to that is going to be something I'm fascinated to see in the first round um, and to see how the Hawks go back and forth. Would you 
pick the Hawks to win a first round matchup, I mean, it looks like they're either going to be four or five or six. Um, so probably around the Knicks, the Celtics are coming or then that third seed, maybe the Bucks, but it'd be a tough matchup for all of them. Yeah, I think that question is really matchup dependent. You know, right now they're slated to face the Knicks, but that could easily be the Celtics in two game, in two days, you know, just because of how tightly packed the Eastern Conference is right now. The Heat are, are a couple games back of the Hawks with, you know, with 10 to play. Two games is, is you know, obviously a higher percentage of, of games to make up. Charlotte, you'd probably think is, is not going to be in the mix there. But right now I would probably project the Hawks to just knowing their schedule and none of these other teams to finish fourth, that would make New York, Boston, and Miami the, the most likely matchups. I would probably pick Boston and Miami over Atlanta right now, just because they're more proven. You know, they were in the conference finals last season, and whatever you can say about their drop off this season, the players they've lost, their the decline of their returning players, all of that. Um, I still think those are teams that that are just going to be able to execute on a higher level in the postseason. New York would be a tough series, but I, I would probably pick the Hawks to win that just because I'm not sure how the, the Knicks are going to score against anyone in the playoffs, really. And, and I mean, the Hawks are maybe the most favorable matchup for the Knicks. It's kind of an interesting thing there where I don't think either of those teams wants to play Miami or Boston. They probably want each other if possible. But, um, you know, the Hawks. So maybe from the Knicks perspective, you could say, well, the Hawks don't have that great of a defense anyway. So that's the one team that New York could score against, you know, but I still kind of think that, that as, as good as their defense is, they just, I mean, they don't have much floor spacing. They don't have a lot of creation and, and they've done a a decent job kind of making up for that this season and just finding it from, from thin air almost. But um, yeah, ultimately like, like that would be a hard fought series. That's probably the most entertaining option um, among all of these permutations, but that would be the one team I could see the Hawks winning against. And obviously if they fall to six, seven, eight, they're probably down against any of those, those top three teams in the East. It totally would be fun to have the Nets be a matchup at some point, because those are two offenses that just put up a lot of points. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the if the Hawks get the four and that the Nets stay at one, or even if the Hawks get the five and they're in that four or five matchup and the Nets get the one, if both teams won in the first round, that's your second round matchup. I agree. I think that would be really fascinating. I, I don't think they want to see the Sixers. They just have no, no matchup, no answer for Joel Embiid. The Bucks. I mean, they're going to be underdogs against any of these teams, but the Bucks, I would say, are probably the second most favorable matchup among those three. But um, the Nets, I mean, those, that's kind of like you said, stylistically, that's the team that the Hawks maybe match up with the best and have matched up with decently well this season. And there is some evidence, like if DeAndre Hunter is back, I think that's an interesting series because he's guarded James Harden well before. And I'm not saying the Hawks would win that series, but I don't think, like if, if DeAndre Hunter and Chris Dunn are healthy, there's a world where they can sort of match up with the Nets and maybe not get decimated, you know, get killed and not totally killed, I guess, is the, <laughs> but ultimately they're, they're still losing the series. But it, that would be interesting. Like they, they could have a fighting chance if they're totally healthy. Whereas some of these other teams, Philly in particular, there's just not a a great matchup there for them. The last question about getting into the playoffs with the play-in tournament, there's this period where the teams that don't have to be in the play-in get like five days off going into the playoffs. Do you think in the Hawks play, as you said, kind of a soft end of the schedule, but the wizards are clearly trying to push for, 
the playoffs and could be, you know, going with Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal. There's just going to be a lot of scoring. How important do you think it is for the Hawks, who we've both talked about being injured, to try to get that sort of week off, a young team get some practice in, B six, five, six, four, even. Do you, do you think they should really be like, this is what we need to do to get out of the play in? Yeah, I, I do. And I think the schedule will help that naturally, you know, and just where they are in the standings already, it would be, it would be difficult for them to fall into the play in at this point, although we've seen Atlanta sports teams um, plummet before. So um, not, not unheard of, but yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting question though, of like the rest versus rust. That's always the thing you, you wonder about in the playoffs, but with the play in, we've never seen it before. Like we don't know how, we don't have any any data to draw on from the past of like, okay, this is how teams have historically done, um, you know, when they are in the play-in versus not in the play-in and how they play on their first game back or whatever, what that rest period does, we, we don't know yet. So I tend to think that, like you said, having the practice time would be really good because especially in this season, I don't think there's a single team that's had any significant practice time this year. It's just impossible to do. So that in addition to, getting guys healthy, resting guys, some of the veterans, especially Gallinari and Lou Williams, just taking some stress off of their legs for a few days to get them fresh for the playoffs. See, I mean, it makes sense to me. I think that that would be the way I would lean, but on the other hand, you could also see guys tightening up and then they're, they're off their feet for too long and they come back and they don't have, so I I don't know. Um, I I think, yeah, I mean, ultimately like you do want to just get the higher seed, avoid the play in if you can, but, um, yeah, I'm really curious to see how the four, five, and and six seeds, and and really, I mean, the top three as well. I don't think it'll be as much of a problem for them, but how the teams that aren't in the play-in in each conference look in their first game because they'll have such a long time off. Ben, those were all the questions I had about the Hawks. Just generally, what have you thought about the NBA so far this season, or and also like maybe who do you project to win? But it's been a condensed season. We've seen a lot of injuries stack up. This play-in, as you said, we've never seen this before. Is it, you know, it has sparked some excitement and we're seeing teams that maybe wouldn't be talked about be talked about. Um, I think we'll see that going forward. But what have been your thoughts on the season so far? And if we have to look forward to the championship or what team do you think has the best odds to win the championship right now? I would probably stick with the Clippers right now. I've, I've, I've been leaning toward them for the last month or so. I still think they're just the most complete team. If they're healthy, I mean, Pat, Pat Beverly has been injured for a little while. Kawhi Leonard is out right now. Uh, Serge Ibaka has missed a ton of time. So they, they've been, they've been fighting off some injuries to key guys that could be a problem if they persist, but assuming everyone is generally pretty healthy, I think they're the most complete team on both ends of the floor. I think they're one of the few teams in the the entire league really who can exploit mismatches on offense and also prevent them on defense, which is that just having two way versatility like that is pretty important in the playoffs. Um, Obviously we've seen Paul George and Kawhi Leonard have great moments in the playoffs. We've seen them have less great moments in the playoffs. So you don't really know what you're getting in that sense, but I I ultimately, I mean, those are great players. Like I think you assume that they're going to be great. Even if with Paul George, it is starting to get like Charlie Brown in the football where I'm, I keep believing, I keep believing, and then he lets me down. But I'm still believing. I'm still believing in the Clippers. After that, I I like Phoenix. I'm starting to like them more and more. Obviously, the Lakers, um, if they're healthy, they're probably, 
would probably be the consensus favorite. I would still have them maybe a step below the Clippers. And then Utah, I, I mean, I like what they've done in the regular season. I think they can win the championship. I think there are three, four teams in the West that can win the title, but I have more questions about them in the playoffs um, than these other teams, especially re- relative to their seeding. You know, being the one seed, like I don't think they're as strong a postseason team as most one seeds typically are. And then in the East, it's those top three teams. And I think really it's kind of a rock, paper, scissors match between those, just depending on who meets in the conference finals. I think it could go in any of three different ways. But I think the one thing I would I would bet on is that the team from the West would be the favorite to win the finals against any team from the East, except maybe the Nets. I could see the Nets being a problem for some of those Western Conference teams, but their defense is just so bad. I mean, like as good as their offense is, are they going to be that much better offensively than their opponent and be able to make up the difference that, that will undoubtedly exist on defense? Maybe, maybe, but I'm not sure about that. And they're fighting injuries of their own too with, with Durant Harden currently out. Kyrie has missed time as well, you know, so we don't totally know what we're going to get from them either. So yeah, it's just a lot of unknowns. Like right now there aren't a lot of healthy contenders. Obviously Denver has, has suffered a pretty significant blow, which sucks, but it's, it's hard to know. I mean, I think the first round of this year's postseason is going to be really instructive just as far as maybe not necessarily with the intrigue of who's going to win each first round series, but just how do these teams look, you know, are they really the team that we think they are? Does the theory of the team hold up? Does it look like the sort of team that, that you expect it to be, or is there maybe something going on that would cause you to change your, your diagnosis of them and, and therefore kind of shift your, your outlook on how the playoffs are going to unfold. I think that's what I'm going to be looking for in the first round more than anything else is just like, do the nets look like I expect the nets to look, you know, do the, do the jazz answer the questions that I'm wondering if they can answer that, that kind of thing. For sure. For sure. Well, it's been a real interesting NBA season so far, and I'm looking forward to the playoffs. It's funny to me that the playoffs may start to be, kind of even more normal as we get more fans in stadiums and stuff, just with how empty stadiums have been and things like that. But, um, you know, it's going to be exciting for sure. And I think we're going to start to see it. I was kind of excited about the little two game mini series this, this season when they would have a team play twice. So it was kind of like a mini playoff or you get to see a little bit of adjustments, but what we've really seen is teams either get the first win or the second win. And then they kind of, toss away the second game or it's not as competitive which has been a little disappointing but um i'm definitely looking the playoffs should be just exciting and as an atlanta fan and uh hawk someone who follows hawks a lot i'm really excited to see what this team can do but ben thanks so much for coming on the podcast man i can't thank you enough and um i know you do some writing do you have any writing you want to shout out or anything you want people to go read or listen sure yeah first of all thanks for having me this was a lot of fun um always enjoy talking about the Hawks and going back to my roots a little bit. Um, yeah, you can find my writing at the step back, uh, which is part of the fan sided sort of network. Uh, mostly just, I just kind of generally write about the NBA, pick interesting topics and go as in depth on them as I can. Uh, you can also listen to my podcast, read and react wherever you get podcasts. If you want to leave a rating review, you can, if not, that's, that's fine as well. Just, uh, listen and enjoy. But I do that with a buddy of mine named John and, um, you know, we just kind of like to dive into the NBA at large and take a look at the league. So if you want to check that out, you can, if you want to check out the writing, you can. And other than that, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me.
Thanks again to Ben Ladner for coming on the Kettlecast. You can reach me, Forrest Willoughby, at kettlecast at gmail.com. And if you could leave a rating or review on whatever platform you use to get your podcast, that's a huge help to the Kettlecast. Go Hawks!